Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host Michael Sanderson and joining us again, Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, how are you today? Good. How's it going? Great. Thank you. And Michael, how are you? All good. All right. Today on the podcast, we'll talk about a big week of hearings for MAKO and then we'll take a deeper dive into some public safety issues. But let's jump right in. Michael and Natasha, it was a big week for MAKO. We were all over the place, and we had some of our initiative hearings and weighed in on some big issues generally. Yeah, we, I mean, we we posted a picture, I think, on, on the MAKO Twitter account early in the week of we have a little testimony board. Mm-hmm. We put a half-size sheet of paper up for every bill. I always love that planted picture. A test- session, <laughs> and yeah. it's, this is the time of year when we post that picture, and it's like, holy cow, how do we get to all these places? <laughs> I, I think on Tuesday, we may have been in every single committee in the entire legislature either with written statements, but in most places with panels. We had mm-hmm. elected officials all over town. It was it was bedlam. Yeah, um. running, running across the street from the House to the Senate and trying to get everybody in the right place. It was busy, busy. Hours and hours of hours oh, that too, of waiting yeah. to testify as <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <Yeah. laughs> Very busy day. So, Natasha, one of our initiatives, Reprioritizing Public Health, was heard this week. Let's talk a little bit about that and uh, how that hearing went. Yeah, and so um, our health departments had their fund, their state funding um, cut back during the recession, so around 2009, and it was never fully restored. And so we did have a bill in to reprioritize um, their funding, have that funding restored um, to what it should be in today's dollars. So it was heard um, in the Budget and Tax Committee on Wednesday. Yeah, I, I thought I thought one of the points that landed pretty well with the committee in that hearing, we had a number of health officers in the mm-hmm. room and you know expressing their their interest. But um, one of the things I think that landed was like nobody ever said, you know what, we, we can do with a lot less support for public health. That's just a loser. Let's not do that anymore. No one ever set out to do that. It's just, you know, when you're in a recession and the budget's upside down, you make some cutbacks and ordinarily you get around to patching things up when times get better. And this one just has gone untended for a long time. Right. And there's just so much that the health departments do with that funding. It really helps them target the local needs. And it's everything from, you know, behavioral health and opioid and mental health issues to vaccinations, immunizations, dealing with rabies, environmental food inspections. It's just it really runs the gamut. And you you can't open a newspaper without seeing all those things all over the place. And we're having vaccination issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what public health is all about. And, you know, the opioid crisis, they're huge frontline players in trying to combat that. Right. And we know that the opioid crisis touches everyone in this state, every county, every area. So obviously public health departments in general are being asked to do a lot more with a lot less resources. So it's time to fix that. Right. Another initiative is Next Generation 911. We've talked about this on the podcast. We had our hearing in both the Senate and the House on Tuesday. Natasha and Michael, the hearing rooms were packed with local elected officials, 911 specialists, emergency managers, 911 directors, police, fire, EMS, technical experts, panel after panel after panel expressing the importance of this bill. 
And I'm glad to report that the Senate Finance Committee actually voted the bill out, and it's actually on the floor today as we record on Friday morning. Yeah, boom. Yeah, pretty quick, pretty quick. <laughs> right. I mean, with a, with, a, with a complicated bill and a subject matter that's a little technical and a little tricky, sometimes it takes a lift. But last year, we, we sort of laid the groundwork for this by forming the commission. Legislation passed to form a commission, bring everybody to the table to sort out the details. And it's much easier when you're a senator or a delegate to have someone come in and say, here we all are. Everything in the bill is unanimous. Everybody agrees. These are all the things that we worked on all through the summer. It's exactly the right way to get a tricky thing done in Annapolis. Yeah, I agree. And there was no opposition. And I think you're right. That's because we worked so hard on that commission. You had all the experts there, 23 unanimous recommendations. I think the hearings went really well, and they were well received by the senators and the delegates. Well, back in October, I, I don't think I would have predicted that this would be a <laughs> slam dunk. But boy, I mean, and the, and the the committee members really responded to. I mean, you know, the people the people who are call takers and managers and first responders just all lining up saying this is the right way to do it. Um, it's it was great. Yeah, the folks on the front lines expressing the importance definitely has an impact. So we'll keep you updated there. Let's talk about the school construction bill. There are numerous school construction bills in this year. Um, this is a big issue that we need more money for school construction. We've heard all of our counties say that this is one of their top priorities. That bill was heard. Those bills were heard mm-hmm. in the Budget and Taxation Committee this week, Michael. I know you were in the room with a bunch mm-hmm. of elected officials. How did that go? Yeah, it was, it was an armada for that bill as well. <laughs> and, I mean, you have different jurisdictions who have sort of different flavors of need. Uh, so, you know, Baltimore County has a bunch of aging schools that need to be replaced or big overhauls and so forth. There are some parts of the state where there's just a lot of growth and the student population is booming and they need to build brand new schools to accommodate what they've got. So, um, I mean, but we had big counties, small counties, D's and R's. Uh, The governor has a bill. There's legislative leadership have a couple different bills. There's there's a variety of ways to sort of thread this needle. But having having just waves of people all saying it's it's a good thing to do, I think, you know, one one element that we tried to get in also was – if you want to supercharge this, you may need to find a way to give you know give some kind of a grace period for a county to come up with their share of the cash for these mm-hmm. projects. Right. So that's one of the things that we brought to the table, um, trying oh. to you know trying to give a little flexibility for for jurisdictions who who may not be sitting on the bag of money right today. Right. So again, big showing in there. Very important bills and. I don't know. What's your sense? Do you think the General Assembly tries to do something? I know we're, you know, we're facing some uncertain fiscal times ahead, and this is a big lift, but multiple bills on the table. Everybody seems to be on board with we got to do something. Yeah, um, I don't, good body language, mm-hmm. right? And with multiple bills, that's one of those that's one of those signals that this issue is being taken seriously. You know, it's like, well, I, I got a different way to skin the cat. But so that's that's sometimes a suggestion in town that we're trying to figure this out. And even if the details in one bill aren't exactly it, the the goal is worthy. So I don't know. There, I think there's there's good writing on the wall for it. Okay, and perhaps the longest hearing on our list for today's episode, small cells. And this has been a major issue for local governments in Maryland. Natasha, Michael, let's get into this. I know, Natasha, you were there all day, twice, um, listening to panel after panel after panel. And this is not a bill where there was unanimous support. This is a... uh, 
a very controversial issue. So let's get into that. How did that go? Let's get into this issue generally. Yeah, so it's certainly a complicated issue. Um, big bills there. But, you know, when you get to the hearings, and we had them both in the House and the Senate um, this week, uh, many hours of testimony with many different panels, I think um, what you heard a lot from the industry was more about the technology than anything technical, not mm-hmm. technical about the bill or the process, but more that we need this technology we want some investments. And on the flip side, what you heard a lot from us on uh, local governments and our community coalition bill was that you need that community input. Um, you know, we, we have, um, communities with, uh, undergrounded utilities, historic districts. Um, you also have, uh, cities and, and counties that are, are deploying this technology now very successfully in partnership with the industry. And so, um, it was important for us to, to explain the local government and community input there and the need for it when it's going to be, um, you know, ref- up to refrigerator-sized boxes in, in your community. Right. And one step back, what exactly, Michael, are we talking yeah. about here? Yeah. What, what This technology that we talk about, the industry that we talk about, why is this important and, and why are these hearings you know, so controversial and this is such a big deal, not only in Maryland but across the country? Well, I, I mean, we went through a round of controversy years ago with the placement of big, tall cell towers. Right. And everybody's familiar with the, you know, the 250 foot tower that's off on the side of the road and it serves, you know, a mile or two in every direction. And that's basically the foundation for wireless service right now. And not many communities are thrilled about having this giant tower nearby and so <laughs> forth. So that becomes controversial, but people want service. You want to have wireless service. You want to be able to pick up, you know, use your phone, especially in emergency, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, mm-hmm. so you want service. You want to get it done in a reasonable way. And years ago, this was sort of a big tilt of let's, let's get the cell towers up, but get them in ways that they don't interfere with our police radio systems. Um, try and find, you know, let's, let's, let's put it on the lights at the stadium instead of a brand new giant pole right next to the school, that sort of thing. So that's, you know, that has been the debate for a long time. What this is about is the next wave as the, as the wireless companies want to go to denser coverage, particularly in built up areas, the, the small cells are going to replace the big towers as the main infrastructure. So these are smaller facilities. Um, they say pizza boxes. Uh, that's, that's, you know, that's sort of the thing. It's just a little backpack. It's not a big, you know, it's a little toaster oven. No big deal. Um, turns out, you know, the bill talks about different sizes and, uh, so the the real question is, is this the sort of thing where the community still ought to have a say in what these things look like? Where do they go? You know, how do you place them? And the industry, basically, they don't want to go through. They don't want to have to come to the neighborhood and explain, we're going to put up 16 of these things on their poles up and down your main street. And we don't really want to have to talk to you all about it. That's ultimately what the bill was about. And we finally got a bill hearing to get the cards on the table because talking about the technology is neat, but mm-hmm. talking about zoning is tricky. Right. <laughs> so this is not really about a big turf battle. This is not about money. This is not about, you know, shot clocks as they call them. This is really about community input, Natasha. Yeah, it's, a, it's about zoning. And a lot of what you mentioned was already handled at the FCC level. So what this really is about is that local zoning piece and that community input, which as we all know in Maryland, it's 
Zoning is local. Right. <laughs> it's a very right. important part of local authority. And you definitely had a lot of residents showing up at these hearings and saying, look, you know, I don't want these 50-foot poles showing up outside my door tomorrow with the refrigerator-sized box on the side of it with no local input, no local zoning. And I think they made that point very, very clear. Yeah. I mean, to some degree, finally having public hearings on these bills was a steam release because i mean this was a big deal to us last year industry had legislation last year which was basically just their template bill they drop it in in florida they put it in texas and so forth they're dropping it in every state and they're basically like okay local governments just get out of the way and let us put this stuff up wherever we want that's the gist of their bill um, but the bill never even got a hearing last year. It got withdrawn because there were so many concerns and so many questions, and it wasn't clear you needed state legislation to do this. Right. So finally, you get a bill hearing, and, I mean, you were there to see it. It oh, was yeah. sort of like popping the balloon when it became clear to senators and delegates hearing the bill. Oh, wait, you know, to get 5G and to get this high-speed wireless and the Internet of Things and stuff, well, you mean we don't we don't have to do – it's going to happen anyway? Right. And, like, everybody in the room is like, oh, yeah, it's happening anyway. But it would, sure would be nice if we could do it quick and without it bothering talking to the community. Right, <laughs> which obviously is an issue for us. And I, I know I think we talked about it. It's, it's, a, it's a good tactic perhaps for the industry not to talk about what's in the bill. We've seen the bill. It's very, very complicated. So just keeping it very generic, this is about new technology and making sure everybody has the best service. That was their tactic. Um, I, I didn't hear anyone ever really talk about the bill, which is unusual for a bill hearing, but perhaps a good tactic for a complicated bill like this. Right. They're certainly like 18 page bills. And normally you walk through all the right. specific details of what the bill does and how. Right. And that's, that's, like, that's like bill hearing 101, right? right. I mean, right. we were all sitting waiting for who's going to be the person who tackles the job of actually explaining what's in the bill. And the answer is nobody. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's really complicated. There are a lot of terms there nobody understands. And for them to try and even understand the bill wasn't going to happen. So Talk, keeping it generic seems like that was that was the plan. And there's two bills on top of the fact. So the hearings were together. It was it was right. a lot of information at one time. Um, and we certainly, you know, there were videos, there were pictures, there were props to show scale of size of small cells. Because yes, um, so. I think it was something, again, when you're talking about the technology and not the specifics, um, it really does help to um, put a picture to that and um, really help people see this is what we're talking about when we're talking about why local governments are so concerned with having their zoning authority and what they look like in communities. Well, I mean, I just thought it was helpful for, for people who over the early part of the session, they've heard about this issue and some people have come to us and kind of said, why are you guys against 5g? That sounds really cool. I want that. Why are you against it? What are you talking about? We're just all we want, all we want is to make sure this like makes sense. Yeah, local governments <laughs> want the best technology for their communities. Right. Yes, We're not against five right. G at all. <laughs> yeah, and so if you are uh, on the Twitter account and you saw the picture that was tweeted to tease this episode, that is what we're talking about when we talk about the refrigerator sized box. That's what we're talking about when you said we had a prop. I think that shows people this is not the little pizza box that you might see on the news or, or whatnot. This is the equipment that goes with it, and this is the stuff that would be hanging on these giant poles with no input. 
Yeah, it, it gives the scale um, for the size, which is 28 cubic feet. So mm-hmm. our box right. was the scale of, well, this is what 28 cubic right. feet looks like. And, and, and <laughs> it was a great moment at, at the Senate hearing in particular when one of the committee members asked, you know, pointing at the big silver box. And they're like, is that really what we're talking about? And the industry people, their answer is, no, no, no. We put up little stuff and they're small issues and so forth. But the real answer is, it's in the bill, right? I mean, the the words of the bill say twenty eight cubic feet. That's what that looks like. That's that's not a pizza box. That's a pizza oven, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. pizza oven, refrigerator, however you want to put it. That's what we're talking about here. So that was a very interesting bill hearing, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. It was heard in the House and the Senate. Neither committee it has yet to take action, so we'll see. Yep. yep. Okay. Any closing thoughts on on the big bill hearings this week before we move on? I mean, late February, early March, this is crunch time. The committees are swamped. Uh, Monday night, one of the committees in the House had a hearing that went until 4 in the morning. Yeah, 4 in the morning. <laughs> right. I think so, they start I mean, at 10 a.m. That's right, yeah, you're right. So, <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's, it's the nature of the 90-day session. It sounds like a lot of time. But, I mean, we're, we're closing in on 1,500 bills in the House, and we're over 1,000 bills in the Senate. A lot of them came in at the deadline. So the committees are really crunched for time. Um, that's It's the nature. It's the nature of how this system works, but the next few weeks, there's a lot of a lot of long days of hearing, and then we're going to start seeing votes and actions over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, a lot of a lot of tracking down. What's happening right now in subcommittee, and when are right. they taking a vote? Right. <laughs> Who, what's on the list today? Right. Just chaos. Sometimes organized, sometimes not, but chaos in right. general. So they got about three weeks of time before the crossover date, where the House should have the House bills it wants. Out, the Senate should have its Senate bills that they want to pass out, and then you know they can start working on the things that have come from the other chamber. A lot of those will be the same thing. You know, the Senate's already heard their version of the bill, but there'll be some new topics in the House because the Senate had the only bill, that sort of thing. But you know, you leave that for those last few weeks. But three weeks to get a lot done. Yeah. So long days of bill hearings ahead, which is great fun. Great fun. <laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll take a deep dive into some very interesting public safety issues. We'll talk about that after the break. back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew. Let's talk about some interesting public safety issues. We all saw in the news a few weeks ago that the Golden State Killer, after many, many years, was captured. And the way that law enforcement was able to track him down was through the use of a familial DNA database. And we've seen law enforcement using this technique now across the country to solve cold cases. And what we're talking about here are, you see it on TV, 23andMe, You know, those kind of websites where you can get a kit, you take a mouth swab, you send it back to them, and they'll send you a full DNA profile. Um, That itself is not really subject to law enforcement. They need a warrant to get it. But there are ways that that you can then take that profile and upload it to a public database, Mm. which is searchable. So now we've seen a a bill introduced in Maryland that would 
uh, prevent law enforcement from using this type of data to solve crimes. And let's jump into that a little bit and exactly what are we talking about here? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we did a whole episode or two of the podcast back in the fall about new technology sort of driving new policy. Mm-hmm. And here we are again. This, this whole idea didn't exist 20 years ago. But now you've got a publicly searchable database where people have voluntarily uploaded information nominally so others can, you know, have a better sense of, you know, familial links and things like that. So it's a, it's a nice tool for people who are doing genealogy and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. But now suddenly, wow, there's a big privacy issue. Um, and it's, it's a challenge, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, Natasha, we saw a bill introduced. What does the bill seek to do? And I know there's a lot of history on this subject here in Maryland in general. Yeah, so it seeks to stop, um, uh, prevent law enforcement in Maryland from using um, uh, uh, the public databases for uh, finding um, criminals through the familial links. And what's interesting, Maryland years ago was, you know, one of the first states and few states that actually prohibit um, these searches under the state databases. Mm -hmm. So uh, certainly the proponents of the bill were just saying, well, this is already Maryland law. And the idea here is now we have these new databases. And so what we're trying to say is, um, put those same restrictions on these new databases. Yeah, and in fact, D.C. and Maryland are the only two jurisdictions in the country with laws barring searches for familial DNA and partial match analysis. And Maryland was the first state to ban searches for blood relatives statewide. So Maryland has acted at the state level. And now that we've seen all these new companies pop up across the country, we're trying to say, look, we don't want you accessing those either. Obviously, this is going to generate some controversy, law enforcement, this is a, a great tool that we've seen them, you know, being able to use. So I don't know, what, what do we think here? This is a controversial issue. With, without a doubt. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you're trying to balance the interests of you know, catching bad guys, or in some cases, like identifying victims or other things like that. But particularly on the trying to, you know, find a perpetrator or, or a suspect, and if you've got a tool that says, well, you know, maybe it's someone in this family, um, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there are cops who are like, I want to go kick down some doors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the same time, there's a lot of citizens who are like, I'm not sure I want to have my door kicked down because my uncle took a test right. and put his stuff on a database. Yeah, like, yeah I didn't privacy do it. rights. <laughs> right. I mean, right. know, yeah. people are concerned with their privacy and their, you know, um, Fourth Amendment issues, there. right, right. But I mean, like it's, like you said, we've we've been back and forth in Maryland about under what circumstances do you gather DNA evidence from people who have been arrested? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, is it just when you're arrested, or is it when you're convicted? When you be, or when you're put into a facility and so forth? And that's, I mean, you know, at what point is does the public have a right to a swab? That's a tricky issue unto itself. Now this is like in the ether. This is someone who's voluntarily done this for their own reasons. And is there a public interest that says we ought to be able to dig into this? So I have a question for, for you, Natasha, the, the lawyer in the room. Um, so this this doesn't get into because these are these are multi-state or multinational companies that do this kind of work. But this doesn't run into the kind of constitutional issues we've heard about, like drug pricing limits and stuff like that, where the state can't limit interstate commerce. Um, this this is this is just about Maryland law enforcement, right? Right, exactly, exactly. They're not saying that the companies can't do X, Y, or Z. Right. It's that Maryland law enforcement can't use those public uh, databases. 
Right, and I guess this is a case where you better read the fine print when you're sending your DNA to these these websites, you know, 23andMe or Ancestry.com. They have policies that say, look, if, if if the police come to us and they have the proper documentation, we will turn over the DNA that you've submitted. But then when you when you take your own and you put it onto these public databases, all bets are off in general. Right. And I, I know tons of people that have just on a personal basis have used those databases and they yeah. find long lost relatives. Mm-hmm. And right. I, I think it's really interesting. And at the same time, even me personally, I'm like, I don't know if I want to give away all that yeah. <laughs> I got, I got DNA information. <laughs> of mine. I got one of those for Christmas and I haven't uh, I haven't submitted it yet. Now I'm questioning whether or not, not that I'm a criminal or anything, no. but, you know, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe uh, someone in your family is. Maybe. I mean, the insurance companies, right, right. like just down the line, you're just like, so oh, yeah. this right. information you, you totally is going to be see, out there. Right. You can totally see where this goes. And like, I mean, another thing just with law enforcement, I mean, there's crisscross jurisdictions. Even in Maryland, you have federal law enforcement mm-hmm. that does various things. They get involved in particular crimes and that sort of thing. So do you end up seeing, well, we'll just sort of pass the baton to the FBI on this one mm-hmm. and let them go run down some swabs for us? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean, this the, the whole thing is tricky. I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And like, like privacy versus public interest is always a really interesting line that's constantly moving. And technology is playing a big role in that. Natasha, you mentioned it briefly a second ago, but you know, down the line, this this information could be available to employers, insurance companies, and that could be concerning, right? Because all that data out there that would allow them to sort of maybe discriminate against certain people based on their DNA, and they could say, "Look, I think your DNA is is, is yeah. not very good in terms of you could have some long term health issues, whatnot." Right, so yeah. that creates a whole nother issue here um, outside of law enforcement. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's just so early in the technology and you just don't know what the future will look like. (laughs) Right, right. So tricky issue there. Another tricky issue uh, came out of the Supreme Court last week. They ruled on civil asset forfeiture and then also rules that excessive fines apply to states as well as the federal government. Let's get into this a little bit. Essentially, what the U.S. Supreme Court said was that the Constitution's ban on excessive fines applies to state and local governments, and that limits their ability uh, to raise fines, to use fines to raise revenue, right? Yeah, and so it doesn't um, prohibit at all civil asset forfeiture, but it does ultimately – it means the question becomes what is excessive right. when you're when it comes down to these fines and uh, seizing some of the properties, and so it certainly opens up states now and local jurisdictions to that challenge of, well, is what you're seizing is what you're fining excessive mm-hmm. for the case. So I, th- I mean, with with forfeiture, I mean, I'm I'm the only one here who's old enough to remember Miami Vice, but <laughs> but you know, back in the '80s, there was this hotshot TV show, and it's these you know cool dressed cops in Miami, and like the whole thing was there's these drug runners, and they got these super fast speedboats, and they can outrun the Coast Guard and stuff like that, and the whole I mean, you know, the, what I think of as the centerpiece idea is property you're using in the commission of a crime you forfeit that when you you know when 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 you when you catch it right mm-hmm. so so that, you know we're like okay you know you got the fast speedboat so you could outrun the coast guard we caught you you lose the speedboat and that's that's been you know one of the tools of the trade especially fighting drugs uh, for years and years 
Uh, so, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that the Supreme Court was looking at here. And they, you know, this case out of Indiana was sort of a perfect case to try the limits. I'm trying to remember the details, but it right. was you know someone with a relatively small amount of illegal drugs and loses, you know, a high end car. Right. right? right. <laughs> yeah. And that's where it came from. And, you know, Maryland, this is another example, though, of Natasha, where Maryland does have strict protections in place when it comes to forfeiture and, and fines, right? Right, right. They've made some changes. I think most recently it was in 2016, which really on the state level took out a lot of um, typically what makes this issue so controversial is that in a lot of places and going back to those Miami Vice days, the idea is that there's um, some uh, – person that's just you know driving cross country and they get pulled over by police police seize all their assets and then it goes just right to them and it's used as a source of revenue but maryland has on a local uh on a state level just institute a lot of protections there so that um uh it, it takes out incentivizing um uh, seizing property for those purposes. And in a lot of times with the state cases, the drug cases, um, part of that money um, is required to go to uh, drug treatment and education purposes. So, so I guess what happened in this case in Indiana, there would have been a lot more to hang your hat on in Maryland. If, if right. that had happened here, there's a lot of protections in Maryland law that we've already we've already looked at this and tried to put some balances and limits on this sort of thing in Maryland. In Indiana, I guess, basically, their state Supreme Court more or less said – we're looking at the U.S. Constitution, and it doesn't apply as a limit on state and local governments. So they were basically saying the forfeiture is fine. Then it got appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they say, all right, not so fast. We all agree. This is a nine-nothing decision, by right. the way. It was unanimous. Yeah. And they ruled, look, that there is a clause in the Constitution's Eighth Amendment that does protect Americans against excessive fines. And now they're saying that also applies to the states and the localities. Right. So so to me, I mean, the forfeiture element is what's in the news today. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the language of the of the ruling is not limited to forfeiture. I mean, they're 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 basically saying we've got, you know, we've got years and years of tests under federal law and in the federal courts about various fines and penalties and so forth. And I'm sure there's a body of case law that talks about what's excessive and what is proportionate to the offense. Mm -hmm. And if now they said all this now applies to everything that's happening in state and local government, which it seems like what they're saying, Mm -hmm. you have to imagine there could be a decade of other litigation over who knows what. I mean, yeah, how do you I mean, interpret that? Right. I mean, you know, I mean, all these, you know, the the sign that says "Don't smoke in the elevator" or you face <laughs> a fine, or what's you know, what's the fine for parking in the parking in the disabled uh, spot at the parking lot? I mean, like like lo- local governments and state governments use fines as a way to enforce behavior in lots and lots of ways. I have no idea what 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 the test might be to say. Okay, you know, three hundred is too much. You got to make that a sixty dollars fine, or, or who knows what, right? Yeah, I think that's the most interesting thing is where right. this, uh, right. how this develops. Yeah, this could be the beginning of a conversation rather than you know. Okay, now we have new rules for forfeiture. Everybody play by these new rules. This could end up being you know, there's 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 folks flipping through law books as we speak, saying, okay, well now it's it's game on. We got you know, let's look through all these old federal rulings. And I don't like what Oregon's doing here when I tried to, you know, build my patio. Right. So, okay. Yeah. All right. So maybe people should be paying attention to the fines portion of this decision. 
as you said, that's not what's being talked about now. It's the forfeiture piece, but certainly this could open the door to a flood of new litigation, uh, you know, down the line. I I, th- I think so. I think this may be maybe the beginning. Yeah. Okay, so very interesting stuff there. Let's get into what we are looking forward to in the coming weeks. Michael, Natasha, anything particular you're looking forward to? Besides, like, the weather warming up and going to Guam and whatnot. But, like, right. that, I mean, that, that would be nice, wouldn't that it? Sounds, yeah, that's, actually, hold on. Can I, can I change my vote? No, 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 no. no we, we know that. Well, I, so it's nice to be able to, to spend a week on the podcast and talk about policy issues and interesting stuff like this and these interesting bill hearings and so forth. Uh, my prediction is next week we're going to be talking about money again. Uh, it's, it's time for the official revenue estimate, you know, estimation to come out. Um, the border revenue estimates is going to meet next week and everybody knows the numbers are coming down. So what has been a pretty calm budget year is about to get less calm. Um, and that we, we just saw a uh, budget reconciliation bill introduced by legislative leaders, which right. I don't, I don't, think I've ever seen before. Um, So they're going to have to do some nipping and tucking just to make this year's budget work. And as of a month ago, we were saying things like, Budget's a smooth sale. Everything's fine. Well, once revenues, you know, revenues drop by, you know, three, four hundred million bucks, which is what we're hearing. Now, suddenly you got to start digging under couch cushions. And why are why are we going to see the revenue write down, Michael, just to remind people? I think it's a it's a number of things. I mean, we're constantly watching uh, people who are having their taxes withheld on their on their paychecks. And, and you know, you go buy a refrigerator, you pay a sales tax. We see those receipts every month right. and so forth. Uh, part of it certainly was the federal shutdown. And we're so close to D.C. There's an awful lot of economic activity that just got put on pause. Uh, federal employees you get their retroactive pay, but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know beltway bandits and a lot of folks who do contracting work and support work in and around federal government who aren't getting anything back. Mm-hmm. So that was certainly a dip in the regional economy. But there's also just some softness in the labor market and a little skittishness in the corporate world. So you know it doesn't take a lot to move the needle by three four hundred million dollars. So inter- introducing the Burfa today actually is maybe. You know, uh, a preview of what the General Assembly is thinking in terms of there will be a revenue write down. We got to start preemptively trying to to figure this out and figure out where we're going to find the money to make it up. Yep. So a lot of stuff on the table. We'll see. We'll see if uh, we're part of that. Okay. So far, we are not, but we have to keep keep our eyes out. Natasha, how about you? So I am looking forward to a more focused bill list. So, you know, we mentioned a little bit earlier that this is these next couple of weeks are really going to be when you're chasing down subcommittees and voting lists. And um, at the moment, we all have these long lists of bills (laughs) that we're tracking. Um, But very soon it becomes very clear. This bill's clearly moving. This bill's clearly dead. And then you have these ones in the middle, and those are the ones you end up focusing your time on, where you can really, um, you know, move the needle on whether it passes and whether it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so, um, honestly, for me, it's probably one of the more fun parts of session is when you really are working those policy bills and trying to get it one way or another. I would Not agree. the easiest part of session, right. but. <laughs> and and then, then it gets to be like all hands on deck. Like right. the three of us sit down with our colleague, Les, 
class, and he walks us through the latest environmental issue of the day, of the day which none of us can understand. Can. Right. <laughs> and so, like, can can we just get like a two sentence version that I can actually talk to somebody about and that sort of thing? But yeah. that's, I mean, that's part of the gig. I mean, Mako covers an awful lot of ground. Right, Counties right. are affected by tons of things, so you need to know a little bit about this education bill and a little bit about this public safety bill and so forth. So we'll all be talking about local health departments in a week, right? Exactly, because right. right. you're not going to make a very far in the House or Senate building without someone pulling you over and like, where's Mako on this bill? Right, right. Did you guys know someone says trying to bring you in or oh, you want to get on this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we get a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, oh, all the time, all the time. And I love it. Like, you know, at the, towards the end of session, we're all stationed in different spots trying to grab legislators and find them. Are they in the tunnel? Are they coming across? Yeah. The we really need to talk to you about this because this is important. This is really bad. This is really good for us. So, yeah, certainly very fun as we get toward the end, toward t- signy die, things really start to shape up and we can focus on the issues that we really need to be focusing it's on. It's a twisted kind of fun, but it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It takes a special person to enjoy it, but nonetheless, we're looking forward to it. All right, that'll do it for this episode. We'll be back next week, of course. As Michael said, we'll probably get into some more fiscal issues. We'll probably have some more numbers by then about just exactly how much the revenues will be written down. But until then, for Michael and Natasha, Kevin signing off. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a like. It really helps us get our message out. And we will talk to you soon.